unless you're kind of trying to evolve and grow and get better at things that that kind of scare you, life isn't really worth living. So this is something that, yeah, kind of freaked me out or did freak me out. Welcome to a rebroadcast of a classic episode of the Canadian Cycling Magazine podcast. I'm Matthew Pioro. You just heard from Swain Tuft. After that clip, I hope you're asking what could possibly freak Swain Tuft out. He is, after all, the guy who once used a broken hockey stick to chase away a wolf that was menacing him and his dog. Tuft retired from professional road cycling at the end of 2019 but things have been pretty busy for him since. Like many of us, Tuft has to balance his drive and passion for exploring on his bike with the importance of being home and raising his children. In this episode, Tuft also discusses ideas about what can make older riders with day jobs faster. But first, we start this rebroadcast, which first came out in April 2021, with some practical advice concerning bikes, and skis. Swain Tuft, you retired from professional road racing at the end of 2019, yet you seem pretty busy in retirement, especially lately. I want to start by discussing a video that came out in early April that featured you fat biking on snow with fully loaded panniers and touring skis in BC's Cascade Range. The first thing that popped into my head when I saw that was, what is the best way to strap skis to a bike? <laughs> yeah, that's a great question, actually. Um, I struggled with that for quite a long time, trying to get the perfect setup, because um, one of the things that is tricky with, well, there's a few things that are tricky with that. It's uh, trying to make it so it doesn't chafe your legs, and then also not totally trashing your skis, so... Yeah, it took me a while with the racks and all the bags and everything like that, but uh, I finally got a system that was pretty pretty slipstream. If you can get the bindings behind the seat, then the basically the skis nowadays, I mean, especially these ones, they're they're not very thick. So, basically where your your legs are passing by the top tube, you just cinch that down real tight and it's only adding, you know, a couple centimeters either side to the actual bar, so that gives you your space there and then uh a few straps under the the seat rails and and uh, a bunch of packing foam really helped do the trick and and some uh, gorilla tape just to kind of keep everything like cinched up tight you don't want things moving banging around and you also don't want any of the surface of the skis touching any metallic parts because when you're doing like a longer ride on rough roads you just destroy your edges and and start you know like cutting up the p-tex on the the base of the ski so yeah, it took me a while, though. Tell me about the types of bags you used. Why did you opt for panniers? Was that because of the load that you were you had to carry? Yeah, you know, winter adds a whole other element of uh, bike packing. I would, I would say, you know, when you compare that to what I can get away with in the summertime with a with a frame bag and a seat pack and a you know handlebar bag, you can basically fit everything you need. You know, just some extra storm stuff things like that. But in the winter, you just need so much more because everything gets a little more uh, just maybe extreme without sounding too crazy. But, you know, the elements just add that extra bit of uh, stress to, to life. And, and when you're, you know, you're minus five, minus 10 all day, 
and you're doing activities, uh, doing work, you need to pack quite a bit of extra stuff um, in the in the way of cooking and good tents and sleeping bags. Everything gets a bit bigger and bulkier, and that's where the um, the pannier is really come in handy because you can just load those things up. And and not to mention, you need your ski boots in there, and they're just kind of useless, bulky items, you know, until you get skiing, anyways. The area shown in the video was your old stomping grounds. You explored around there more than 20 years ago. What was it like riding there this past February? You know, since we've come back in, in November, uh, we, <laughs> we had a, a lot of our stuff coming from Andorra in a container, and I was just anxiously waiting because uh, I'd be watching the snowfall in the hills and all my ski equipment. I'm a bit of a, a ski nut. It was coming in this container and it was getting delayed and I was starting to lose it, you know, because, um, yeah, I wanted to get out in those hills and get exploring again. And uh, it came, I think the container came mid, mid-December or just before Christmas. And, and I tell you, I was, it, was, it was wild just getting back out there and that nostalgic feeling again. It's weird seeing it through, like, so I have those memories of what it was and then now I'm looking through these eyes that have experienced a ton of other experiences and just kind of see things a different way. Um, and so at first it was a little like, cause I lost the love of skiing in the Pyrenees. I hate to say like I was, um, what I love about BC is, is the big snow, the big trees and just like the wild terrain. And, and, you know, in the Pyrenees, it's, it's dry. It's barely snows. Most of the time you're skiing over rocks and gravel. I was just losing the passion for it. And it was, it was weird because the, my first few trips out, I was just like, oh yeah, I'll just go out for a burn and check out some of the old areas. And instead it just, it just fired me back up again for this, this crazy obsession that I have with it. And basically my entire winter was filled with just trips every week, maybe two, sometimes three times a week, going back to some of these old places. And then with all of the stuff that I've learned in between, you know, just exploring and, and going further now. And I've just been absolutely loving that whole process. You mentioned your move back to Canada from Andorra. You had been in Andorra for eight years. What prompted that move? Yeah, you know, coming back was a long, hard decision. Um, I, I, we were starting a business over there in Andorra after I retired took some time and then I, I started getting fired up on the idea of getting the gravel tours and the Pyrenees going. So I started Tufts Adventure Tours and I was working on a shop. I had, you know, everything set up to go. Uh, <laughs> and it was, it was pretty wild timing. Like basically as everything was coming to uh, completion, I was about to, just about to hire some people. Uh, the pandemic set in, you know, and at first you're thinking, oh, well, a couple of weeks like this, you know, and then we'll get back, back at it. And then, uh, you know, months go by and, and we're sitting there going like, okay, well, we've been away from family and, and uh, Canada for all this time, right? And it was always in our minds to come back, but uh, this just kind of sped things up. Getting back to family and, and uh, raising our kids in Canada, I think, was also really important to us. And it just seemed like the time to do it. But it's very easy to avoid when you're living that life over there because, you know, we'd, we'd created a life there. Our boy was born there. And, you know, that was our house. That was our, <laughs> it was a great place to live, right? So it was very easy to avoid that move. And, Looking back now, when we talk about that move, it's it's so epic. I don't 
I don't recommend it to anyone moving internationally. <laughs> it's, it's incredible the amount of stress and bullshit you go through. Especially after setting down roots for eight years. That's, that's eight years worth of your life that you have to move. Exactly right. Yeah. And you're amazed at the amount of stuff you acquire in that time. <laughs> it's mind boggling. What do you miss about Andorra? There's a lot of things I miss about that part of the world. Um, the accessibility, like we lived at uh, 1600 meters and the road that we lived on was, uh, it went into Spain. So basically you did this beautiful climb from my house for another, I think it was another 10, no, 12K of climbing. And then you reached the Spanish border, which is just uh, the road turning into gravel. And then you descend down into this big valley, Valderan, and you're back down at 700 meters in this in this valley. And from there, you can go into France. And there's just a million old roads and goat trails and, and so much stuff to explore just in that little area. And I would say that was mixed with like the the very temperate weather, right? Like it's it's very Mediterranean influence. So that's why those mountains don't get the snow. I mean, they they get some wild weather every now and then, but nothing like in, in BC, right? In BC, when you're at 1600 meters in the middle of January, you're generally freezing your nuts off. And uh, I think of uh, in the Pyrenees, most of the time, that time of year, I've been in t-shirts, you know, at that same, just enjoying the sunshine. So they, they both have their interest to me, but... Um, if I was going to say anything, it's just that accessibility into the backcountry is just, and it's, it's very simple, right? Like, whereas I look at what I had to pack along on uh, this ski touring trip, right? It's just so much gear, which, which is cool in itself, but uh, it's a lot of stuff to lug around. One of the reasons you stepped away from professional road cycling was to spend more time with your family. Your son Gunner was about two years old when you retired in 2019. Even though you've retired, you still spend a good chunk of time on your bike. How do you balance the importance of family life with the, your strong desire to explore? Yeah, I mean, that's a, another great one, great thing to deal with, for, especially, you know, athletes where we've kind of been hardwired to just kind of look after number one, look after yourself and always be concerned about your recovery and how are you feeling and all that shit. And I think that that's a really detrimental way to go through life. And I think that's probably one of the best things, uh, <laughs> you know, children have brought into my life is, is, um, is to really kind of face that aspect of yourself and understand that right now they're number one. They're the, they're the most important thing you'll do now from this point on, you know? Um, but in, in saying that you also have to respect who you are and, and, never kind of turn your back on the things that made you who you are. And if you're passionate about those things, you still have to do them. And I think that example for your kids is is also very important. So there's, there's a tricky balance in there because you can't go running off doing your thing constantly. And what I've noticed is even though like in my mind, that's what I think I'd like, as soon as I leave, I'm, I'm missing them right away. So, <laughs> you, you know, it's just, it's just that part of life, right? So I know for myself, that is the most important thing that I'll be doing. But I do know for my own sanity and, and, and just being who I am, I have to go and, and still challenge myself and push myself in these ways. And I think that's how I can bring the best to my family when I get those little moments where I do the stuff that are kind of essential to my core. Near the end of March, 
you and your former teammate Ryan Anderson released the first episode of your podcast. It's called Back of the Bus. I think I know where this title comes from because Ryan used that phrase on this podcast last fall. But remind us what the back of the bus means to you and Ryan. Well, the majority of my career, I I spent uh, all of the time in the back of the team bus. Um, When I was on Green Edge, when I was on Garmin, I just found it was like, uh, (laughs) it's funny, like, it, different bus layouts are all have their their quirks and their characters, but um, I just always found it was the most quiet, and it was the place where people came back to talk about real stuff, right? And up front is all the action, the coffee machine, people bashing around, directors stressing about the day, and you just get caught up in everyone's weird energy. And in the back, it, like you try and get some like minded people back there, so it was just a, it was a time to relax because I always liked that calm before the storm, and. There's always the best discussions back there. You like what I loved is you would be talking about other things aside from the bike race, right? So I always tried to attract different people down there. And then, you know, the the year Ryan and I spent on rally, we had a bus and R- Ryan and I would sit back there quite a bit and just yeah, just shoot the shit, you know. And and I've known Ryan forever. Um, going back to I think one of the first times I came across him was 2006. So yeah, we, we go a long ways back and, and uh, he's someone I really respect. Um, and so it was, it was actually great. I mean, those are some of the best moments and memories of um, that year that I, that I rode on rally. <laughs> just, just hanging up back there and, and talking about, you know, just life in general, you know, and I think that's really important when you're doing such an intensive job, like professional cycling, you, you need some places to just decompress a little bit and kind of reflect on that crazy uh, job you're doing. How did the idea for that podcast come about? I think we have a a perspective, you know. Um, I know just from our discussions, we we look at things differently than... than maybe a lot of others do. And we have that kind of inside knowledge of professional racing. Um, And I think we're both kind of aligned in how how we look at things. And uh, I think we just really wanted to share our experiences out on the road and then get athletes and hear their stories in the sense of, um, because I think it's amazing, like the the people who really uh, um, make it into the professional world of cycling, especially Canadians. I find their stories are really fascinating because uh, it's not always uh, so straightforward, right? It's (laughs) it's quite often a lot more struggle than it is for... um, young Belgian kid with a, with a ton of talent and, uh, to fight your way over and go move over there. And there's something in there extra that, uh, I think really kind of makes them stand out in my mind. And, and, uh, I think that's the most fascinating part for me. So I think we both kind of share that same, same passion. One, sharing those stories from, uh, out on the road, but also kind of figuring out what, uh, makes people tick. In 2020, you appeared on Flow Bikes for many of their watching parties during stage races. And I'm thinking you're also doing podcasting. You speak a lot for, for various events and stuff. And you're doing interviewing. Does this all come naturally to you? <laughs> Man, if you, if you told me uh, 20 years ago, uh, or even 15, 10 years ago, uh, there's no way. Like, I'm, I'm massively introverted. So it was never, never on my radar, any of this stuff. But what I, I think what I find in life is that you always have to challenge yourself with new things that 
kind of scare you, you know, like, so public speaking always kind of freaked me out when I was younger. <laughs> I hated the idea of it, you know, and what I found just, I, I would say that's, so this is what I try and tell kids, you know, like in cycling, for example, when you're, when you're trying to go through the, the path of becoming a professional and all that stuff, right? The odds are like, whether you make it or not, it's, it's really hard to say, right? And the odds are pretty slim. Let's, let's put it that way. But what I always try and kind of harp on is the fact that all of these things that you'll learn along the way will change you and make you ready for whatever else you do in life and make you better at those things because you have that drive and determination to figure out how to do that stuff. And you're challenging yourself all the time, right? And I guess that's my my biggest point is that I changed a lot throughout my career. Um, people have stories of who they think I am or, or, you know, just, yeah, it's kind of out there that I'm a certain way. But I think that unless you're kind of trying to evolve and grow and get better at things that, that kind of scare you, life isn't really worth living. So this is something that, yeah, kind of freaked me out or did freak me out. And now it's something I've become a lot more comfortable. And then when you open that door to those things, um, you just get more practice. And it's like anything, right? You, you do something enough and without even really trying, you're just kind of a little bit better every time. And then if you do have that kind of critical aspect in yourself, which I think most like athlete type people do, you're kind of your harshest critic. Um, you'll, you'll find you can just get uh, better and better at it for whatever your level is. Huh? And for me, I'm starting at the rock bottom. So, you know, can only get a little better, right? I don't know. I think I've like, I've seen those watch parties and I've heard you speak. I think, uh, I don't know. You, you're, I think you're finding your niche as an interviewer. That's for sure. But I do want to pick up on a talk that you did recently. In mid-March, you gave a talk for Global Relay Bridge the Gap. Can you remind us what that organization is and why it's important to you? Yeah, so Global Relay was founded, uh, geez, I can't even remember the the dates, 2012, I think. And uh, that was, you know, Ryan's connection to the the Gastown Global Relay people. And, And so it's, you know, Andrew Pinfold, Ryan Anderson, myself, Aaron Willick, um, Will Routley was one of the originals in there. And then Kevin Field, they're all part of that uh, group that tries to basically bridge that gap, get those kids um, a chance when they need it. Like, you know, cycling such a crazy sport that way. When, when you make it, you have more than enough uh, resource, right? You have almost too much. People are bending over backwards to help you. And when you're at that level just below that, people don't even know who you are or you're, you're barely getting any help whatsoever, right? And sometimes just a, a flight somewhere or a, a bit of cash to help out with a training camp is the difference between making it on a team or not. It's been an awesome program to be a part of this. Just seeing a ton of kids come through there and actually make it to the next ranks or just grow up to to, to good people, right? They, like I said before, it's it's not always clear you're going to make it, but uh, in, in those years, you learn so much. So yeah, I think it's been a, a really satisfying thing to be a part of. And then speaking with Kev and Rich Wolves, Kevin Field and Rich Wolves about uh, trying to get more of these talks going, right? Get that discussion with the, with the kids, because that's one thing, you know, and going back to your question about like a podcast, it's like, it's just none of this information's out there. And I feel like you know, when I came up, I was just lucky. I had some older guys who kind of just gave me some rough information, you know, like, but 
you know, you still had to find your own way, right? And no one actually knew anything about the, those steps that I was making at the time, or at least the people around me. I, I probably could have been a lot better at reaching out to to certain people, but that's just it. If you don't have access to those people, it's it's really hard. So the other great thing that Bridge the Gap does is we have uh, all these mentors now. So all the the Canadian cyclists who are professional or have had a career, they're now part of this group that uh, works with our athletes that are making those those next steps. And and so you kind of stay in touch with your athlete uh, for maybe two, three times a month and just see how things are going, what's going on, like where what's their next plan. And they have questions, you're, you're always there. So yeah, it's it's been a really cool process. And I, th- I just think we need to grow that more and more because Canadian athletes in general need all the help they can get, especially in a sport like cycling that's uh, not mainstream. In that talk, you advised the young riders listening that it was important to let one's legs do the talking and it's important to be humble. And I thought I might dig on that one a little bit because athletes today aren't just athletes. They are on social media. Many have become brands unto themselves. You've seen this phenomenon grow throughout your career. And all of that is very off-bike work. And I'm wondering, does the brand ambassador work that riders have to do, does it run counter to ideas of humility and just letting the legs do the talking? I think more and more it's becoming a stronger presence. Like I think riders are starting to realize that they can work a lot on that side of things and and still have a job in cycling. But the crazy thing about professional cycling is no matter how recognizable you are, <laughs> in the end, if you can't if you can't help your team or get results or whatever that's required of that team, you you just have to move on, right? It, it comes down, <laughs> like teams definitely love that presence, right? They love the balance of the, the person who can mix all those things together, have a great social media presence, and then win races or be an awesome teammate. But the reality is if you aren't focusing on the bread and butter of that job, forget about all that other stuff in my mind. And, and I know I might sound like a crusty old guy, but you know, like that's the reality of that job. It's too frigging hard. And, and you know, Talking to my friends uh, in the world tour this year, it sounds like it's even gotten harder. The desperation of of contracts and what could happen, and the the, the calendar has no races. You know the the races that are non world tour now have like ten or twelve world tour teams in them. So that that pro conti level, those guys are struggling the most because they don't actually have many places to shine. So the the risks are getting even more important to take, and that means the racing is more dangerous, it's more intense, it's more it's more crazy. So if you're too focused on your social media, <laughs> it's going to be tough out there. Let's just put it that way. I want to link a few things. Uh, some maybe they're elements of your podcast, maybe they're elements of uh, your Bridge the Gap talk. But in your podcast, you and Ryan mentioned Vincenzo Nibali. You say he's not just a watt machine, but a very versatile rider. Is it possible to develop a rider like Nibali here in Canada? Oh, I I believe we have talent pools that just don't even ever, those kids never even get exposed to cycling. Um, I think there's a lot of Nibalis in the whole world (laughs) that just never get the chance to to get on a bike and, and show those kinds of talents. And you know, when you're looking at 7 billion plus people, um, if everyone got a chance to ride a bike, I would, I would hate to see what the 
the world tour would look like. It would probably be even faster and crazier. <laughs> so yeah, I think I think we have all the talent we need here. It's just we have no real systems to kind of weed those kids out and, and get them in a good, healthy relationship with the bike, right? And I think that's one of the the crazy things with all of these this data and social media stuff is that it's hard for younger people to have a healthy relationship to that training and racing and, and biking. You know, I think back to my earlier years and I, I just loved biking so much. I didn't really care. Uh, if the racing didn't work out, it didn't matter. Uh, it was, it was biking that I loved to do. And with that, it was pushing myself on the bike. So I was lucky that those things kind of worked out in, in a certain way. But yeah, I, I think those, we have that talent out there. But like I said, it's it's gone of the days where you can just be like, a, I mean, it helps to have those watts. But I've seen a lot of guys who in a lab are just the kings, like just your mind is just blown. And then you put them on the bike and they can't finish like the race. And you're just kind of scratching your head going, what what happened? You know, it's and it's not easy to kind of mesh those two things together. The, the, it's a big ask to get an ath- athlete like Nibali at the end of the day, someone who can climb like that and descend like that and then time trial half decently. And, and uh, yeah, I mean, and he's not even the most talented rider of all time. So, I mean, he, I was just using him as an example as like just this crafty Italian fella who, who's just got this good blend of all of these things, right? Sure. Now we have the Matthew Vanderpool and Wout Van Aert who continue to blow everybody's mind. Yeah, you, you go into those guys and, I, and I, like, I don't even know where to start. You know, it's, it's just incredible watching these guys. I have another slightly theoretical question for you. You started road racing at about 23. If the gravel racing scene as it is today with events like Unbound Gravel or Mid-South were around in your early 20s, do you think you might have gravitated more toward them instead of road racing? It's possible, but I think part of the gravel racing side of things is you got to be pretty like savvy in the whole connection scene and like kind of doing your own program. And I just don't know if I cared enough in that time to to actually do that. Do you know what I mean? Like I I don't know if I had like the the technical savvy and and like I said I was highly introverted, so calling someone would be a big deal for me, right? And because you needed that help. And one of the things road racing provided is like, you could just show up and get your ass handed to you and then kind of go home and like, there would be like a crit the next day and, or a time trial and local stuff, right. That was just always present or Tuesday night race. Um, and that could really help me kind of just figure out what I was doing and, and if I actually was capable. Whereas these gravel races, as much as I think they would have suited me probably way better and just my ability. Because <laughs> like just grinding for 10 hours seems like a much more suited thing to me than dynamic road racing. Like the <laughs> So yeah, I, I, I just don't know if I would have had the, the mentality to, to figure it all out at that time of my life, right? Because I just, I'd basically come out of being a hobo and living in the mountains. So yeah, I was not super savvy when it came to all this other contracts and trying to figure out all that stuff. Right. I could totally see that because the the Tuesday night race, you can, you know, show up on your own time or in, sort of on, in your own space. Yeah. Do what you got to do and then and, and go. But like a gravel event is a whole 
Well, it's a bigger time investment. It's a bigger production that you, you, you're going to get involved in. Yeah. And I think of like starting out, my equipment was so rubbish. Like <laughs> you can't take a, a crappy bike on a 10 hour gravel race, like, and really put it through a race, right? Like you can ride through that course and pick your lines and take it easy. But a race is a whole other can of worms, right? You're just smashing through potholes and bashing rocks and, you know, taking risks on descents. <laughs> I don't think any of my equipment would have been capable of making it through the, you know, with, with what I had money wise and all that stuff. I had just the very basic stuff. Whereas road racing, as long as you don't crash, your stuff is going to make it through the day, right? Swain Tuft, you are into your second year of retirement from pro road racing. What has surprised you about retirement? Yeah, that's something I've talked about a bit. Um, I think one of the things about retirement is that you are never going to be prepared for what it is. You think you have this idea of what it's going to look like, but the reality is until it happens, you just, you have no idea. And it's, it's a bit shocking because you, it's so awesome in, in so many ways and, and kind of, (sighs) it's kind of hard to explain because your life up to that point, your value has been put into your days on the bike and, you can go and smash yourself for four or five hours. And if it was a great day, you just feel awesome. There's nothing else that day needs to provide for you. You, you just got a smile on your face. You're, you're thinking about recover and then you're planning your next day. And that's that simple life of, of being a professional uh, athlete, cyclist. And then you step out of that world and you're kind of, you, you no longer have that goal, right? My, I lived in these cycles. I lived in this world of, yeah, the season would come and end. It would be uh, world championships would usually be my last race. And then come home a couple of weeks and already you're starting to plan, you know, two weeks goes by, three weeks goes by and you're thinking you're doing these activities and, and then you're building, you start training again and the whole thing, you know, training camp and then the first races. And it's like, you're always looking forward. Right. And as much as that was simplistic and, and I loved that, that rhythm of life, it, life went too fast and a lot of it was just passing by so fast. So you have to stop that at some point, right? That's not a sustainable way to live. Also, your body can't keep doing that. <laughs> um, but yeah, when you when you don't have that in your life, it's it, there's a big hole. And I can see how it would be easy to fall into some pretty bad traps. And I, I just was lucky that I still loved biking so much. And, and mostly I loved the adventure bikepacking and and just doing trips uh you know my last years as a, as a rider i was just doing four or five day long touring trips to train if i had a big block i would go i'll get that volume in through touring i'd go through france and spain and back and forth into the Basque country and and uh, it was honestly the, the it just made me so happy and i <laughs> i never lost that when i when i was done so um i think that was the most shocking thing was just but just trying to disconnect from that ego, that connection to that training and racing feeling, that dopamine high, that crazy energy you get from like feeling good on the bike. It was hard to let go of, but it's like everything in life. There's a time for everything and you have to learn to let go. And the ego is a powerful son of a gun. It's it's easier said than done. Let's put it that way. Uh, I'm wondering if there needs to be a a bridge the other gap for... um for cyclists retiring. <laughs> yeah, I, I definitely think so. I, I think it's a big hole in the game. I think that uh, 
I, I like I said a few times, I'm, I'm pretty lucky in the in the fact that I was on great teams. If I wanted to work in the in the Green Edge uh, group, the Green Edge family, it was always there for me, right? Um, but that wasn't for me in the sense of being a director. I love the sport. I love I love my friends on that team. But sitting in a car and and mulling about uh, stage details, it's just yeah, I can't can't do that. Um, but that's also you know, it's not not everyone has that that retires has that opportunity right so we have to we have to help these guys because they're at a very vulnerable part of their 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 life and i think of the younger people we're all concerned about the development of riders and that's that is number one but i'm going to say a strong number two is definitely looking after our riders as they step away because as you might know from that sport is that it's it's just all consuming. You're, you're, everything is about that sport in order to survive for some people. Some people can have a lot of side projects, but they're very rare. And so what happens is, is you're so wrapped up in what you're doing day in and day out that you're not really planning for anything else. And there's a danger in planning for other things. Because as soon as you start seeing that, <laughs> that way out, that shitty day up in Belgium is going to be a lot easier to step into the to the feed zone and, and, uh, grab a ride to the, to the bus. If, if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. There's not that extra level of investment that you, you need to perform at your best. Exactly. You need to live, live and die by that kind of <laughs> way of thinking. At least that's how I was, you know, I had to be all in because, uh, it's just too hard of a sport. If you have a way out, it's uh, it's not going to last long. You're going to take that option every time. I've heard you're working on another project, uh, that you're working on a book. A, is that true? And B, can you talk more about a book that you, you might be working on? Yeah, um, working on a book uh, with, a, with a friend who, yeah, he's been a journalist in cycling for, for many years from the UK, a uh, guy named Richard Abraham. It's been a process. It's It's awesome, like... <laughs> Uh, it, it's so much work when I see what these guys have to do to compile all the information and he's putting it in my words. So when I see what that is, it, it's mind boggling because we've, that started basically, uh, right after I retired, we started getting into it and it, the, the actual recording. So we used to just do like two hour, three hour long recordings <laughs> of, of just like interview based, uh, recordings. And, and he has, yeah, he has more words than he knows what to do with. And he's trying to edit it all down. And it's been an incredible process because I, I didn't think I had that many stories or that much to say, you know, and then you, you start opening up this can of worms in your mind. And yeah, it's, it's been uh, uh, an incredible process, something that was really enjoyable to do, uh, far more than I thought. And Richard's working hard on uh, getting it <laughs> getting it finished up for possibly this season or maybe in 2022. So yeah, it's it's a it's a ton of work and he's doing fantastic stuff. What do you think you'll be doing this summer? Well, I'm uh, already uh, looking forward to that. I have a lot of uh, recon trips, planning uh, different gravel routes, how they link up. Um, that's one of my favorite things, trying to figure out how to kind of link up forest service roads here in BC and maybe little hike a bike or slash trail um, over the passes into the next valley. Uh, connecting things is, is one of my favorite uh, hobbies and really kind of 
seeing the, the majority of the province. Um, but in, on top of that, running uh, the gravel tours, there's going to be three different uh, routes, uh, a coastal route, Okanagan route, and a Kootenai route. We haven't quite pinpointed the dates, but then uh, the things that we do have locked down are the Tuft camps. And those are um, going to be two dates on the Galliano Island and two dates up in uh, Eagle Pass Lodge up in Revelstoke. And these will be camps based more on uh, performance, but uh, trying to have fun while doing it. So kind of steering away from the the typical training camp where you're just slogging out massive volume and, and uh, totally crushed after every day. It's going to be more dynamic training. We, we have a friend uh, and trainer, uh, Paul Larson, who's a sports scientist, been involved with the Aussie program for many years and uh, just a world of knowledge. He's created a, a software called uh, Athletica. And it's an AI top type of software that uh, basically is tracking all of your training and then adjusting on the fly. So, you know, if there's a sickness or poor sleep coming up, then this software has the ability to uh, adjust things. And I think that's really important in that whole coach-athlete kind of connection is being able to kind of be flexible so you actually get the most out of your training. Um, so, yeah, we, we, we're going to be running these camps. And um, I'm really looking forward to getting getting people out there because. A lot of my later years, I was doing a lot of different practices. You know, I was looking at cold therapy, grounding and being in the sunlight and, and looking at all of these other factors like yoga and all of that to add to what I was doing instead of just this one dimensional cyclist, legs up, watching TV, cycling, legs up, you know, this, this cycle that, okay, well, it, it is conducive to the 25 year old who's, you know, life is being a professional cyclist. It's not conducive to the 38-year-old who has a family and still wants to race and be competitive, but doesn't have 25, 30 hours a week to, to, to train like these guys do and live like monks, right? When you're, when you're busy and you have kids, I mean, you can't do that kind of a life. It's just impossible. On your feet all the time, you, you know, you got to work, you got to do all these other things, right? So we want to bring that kind of holistic approach to training where you can actually get the biggest bang for your buck as far as time and, and then also family time and the things that are actually important. So we're, we're, we're really trying to bring that balance into the training and also to be in these beautiful environments. And so, yeah, I see my, my summer really full of those events, those activities, and then uh, also just constantly exploring. And uh, I feel like in life, you got to just stick to the things that you really love. And, and so far, I've been able to pull that off. So I'm just working to keep that happening. <laughs> well, Swain, thank you very much for your time and, and uh, catching up on, on all these various various topics, some of them very philosophical. I appreciate your time. And yeah, I hope all your new projects go well. Thank you. Thanks for your time. And that's the episode. It's written and edited by me, Matthew Piaro. I had help from web editors Terry McCall and Lily Hansen-Gillis. The Canadian Cycling Magazine podcast is produced by Adam Killick. He composed the music too. And if you have sharp ears like Adam, you'll have noticed that I made a mistake in the interview. I got one word wrong in the name of Tuft and Ryan Anderson's new podcast. It is called Back on the Bus... You'll find a link to it in the show notes. I should also thank Ontario Creates for its support. And thank you for listening. 
please rate and review the show, ride safely, and I'll talk to you later.